How are we preparing our, our young people for life? Yeah, I don't think we are. We're preparing them for an economy. And, and I'm a bit cynical in the sense I don't think we have a society. I think we live in an economy and everyone and money is the most important uh, lifeblood of our lives. Every day we have to make money. If you don't make money and you haven't got it, you're stuffed, you know. Yeah. You're, you're homeless and, and your health is going downhill. Yeah. You know what I'm enjoying right at the moment? What's that? I can actually hear a few listeners wanting to debate. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really, really enjoying that. Good on you, Chad. Good on you, mate. Love is the fragrance of this universal field. It's its presence. Any spiritual being that is in contact with it has this loving presence. Mate, there it is, mate. Every guest I have, there's always a sentence that I hear, and I go, that's a wow. You've got to repeat that one for me. <laughs> love is the well, any fragrance. Being, any, yeah, love is the fragrance of emptiness, of, of our core void, this universal field that's like yeah. space. Love is its fragrance. And any individual being who's connected to this essence it is also connected with that loving presence. Wow. Is that you're already enlightened. That this intelligence is at the core of your being right now. And there's ways of accessing it and being in alignment with Do it. Do you believe that? I totally believe it. Yeah. It's, and I found it in every other tradition. It's called the perennial philosophy. But are you saying right now? <laughs> you're saying, hey listeners, come to grips. You're already God. Yeah. Yes, hi, you've just joined A Journey with Bernie, and I'm so glad that you did, dear people. Good to, uh, good to have you on board again. Jeez, I hope you've been enjoying some of the more recent episodes of A, J a Journey with Bernie. What about Matthew Barber, uh, the young man who's just sat a 20-day silent Vipassana retreat up there at Pomona? Can't wait to hear how Matthew's experience um, was had by him. And then also the story of JJ too. Wow, wasn't that an epic? I do apologize for you because... Uh, that's supposed to be only an hour. That's my promise to you. But uh, the JJ went for about an hour and 40 and just had to be that way because of the sensational story that JJ had to offer us. Hey, dear people, you're not going to be disappointed today. That I can promise you. The gentleman's name is Chad Foreman. Now, can I just explain where I met Chad? As some of you are becoming increasingly aware, in this journey to become a more loving human being and one in which we're trying to generate greater happiness within and therefore find more meaning in our lives, part of my journey is to explore different avenues. And one of those is through meditation. And I'm starting to learn there are so many different types of meditation that are available. And this took me to an introduction to a fantastic gentleman, Chad Foreman, The Way of Meditation. Now, why don't you Google that and, and go, uh, go to his website to understand his incredible story. There's one there of a sports person, a young and up and coming budding tennis player who 
in his uh, in his bid to improve his game. He wanted to get on top of the uh, the mental part of his game, and this leads him to a whole investigation and exploration around. Chad, why am I describing this? I think you should be describing the way of meditation, your beautiful business. Tell us about what you do. Well, simply I'm a, a meditation teacher now. I, oh, I you're much more than a, that, man. A, I've experienced you. <laughs> a facilitator of meditation, a meditation coach. Uh, I've, I've been a monk before for six years, living and studying Tibetan Buddhism full time. Uh, so that's where I, I get that experience. Can you please elaborate? When you say you've been a monk before, yeah. what, does, <laughs> what does being a monk look like? <laughs> What's a monk's lifestyle as you just described it? It's, uh, it's different, isn't it? As yeah. we've been talking, you, you describe me as an everyday guy. I, I grew yeah. up with sport, you know. Yeah. We we're talking about the cricket and the footy yeah. and everything else. Mm. Uh, and it was through the sports that got me into mind training, mental toughness and discovering mindfulness, meditation and breath work and other techniques to help pr- improve my performance. And I came across the Dalai Lama and, yeah. and uh, Buddhist books in my pursuit of training my mind. What age are you when you, 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 you're starting to develop this interest? Well, I just this want is, to get it in context. This is, I kind of left school at 17, yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty young really. I dropped out of high school to pursue becoming a full-time tennis player. Wow. Uh, so a couple of years in, like when I was 19, really trying to break through to the pro ranks, uh, I started to take my game more seriously. I had a sports psychologist. So it was around 19 or 20 where I started to look at the inner game of tennis. Wow. Uh, which is a fabulous Galway. book. Yes. Galway. Did I get that right? <laughs> yeah, I think That's you did. Timothy Galway. It, that's, I remember that book. <laughs> it sticks in your mind, the inner game of tennis. Yeah. 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 And, and so you develop an interest in it, but developing an interest in it for tennis is a far cry then from choosing to become a monk. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> How, you give us that gap. How does that develop and evolve? Well... It was a combination of a few things, I suppose, but it's training the mind and my idea that if you could train the mind to be happy and enlightened, that would be the most meaningful pursuit of your life kind of thing. When I came across Buddhism and I sort of adopted these ideas of I need to have more focus for the court, for my game, I realized I could train my mind. I could become calmer, only only to little degrees. I certainly didn't become a saint immediately. In fact, I got into this because I was a bit angry and I did throw my racket around a bit and a, I'm the co- a bit of a McEnroe, yeah. <laughs> so to control that temper, I engaged in these um, spiritual techniques. Did it work you would for say. You? And it did. It did work for me. My uh, mental game was always strong, but it developed it even more. Uh, and that's when my interest sort of peaked into Buddhism and the idea of, wow, how far can I take this? Did it manifest in terms of tennis results? Like, yeah, did for you sure. A better player? Uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. The, the game is so mental. You, you beat players when you're playing worse than them. Yeah. O- only because of this, the mental toughness. Yeah. There's no yeah. other way to describe it. Or nearly a, wi- a will to win. So the, the game of tennis taught me a lot about myself, about my mind um, and these sorts of things. But Buddhism wasn't, um, how would you say, cohesive with the drive to be a, the best player in the world. I was about to allude to this because I can hear, here's this competitive 
yep. achievement-orientated young yep. man in tennis, yep. Yep. <laughs> right, using Buddhism, which I, I, I can't say definitively, is that sort of like the antithesis of this competitive world? <laughs> you could say that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And so you get more attracted then to to the, the, the pursuit of mental enhancement for tennis. Yeah. You then get attracted to it. Let me make that part of my life. Well, to be happier, I, I realized the less angry I was, yeah. the happier I was. Yeah. So I found these techniques to make me less angry. Yeah. Uh, and training compassion and love and patience. And these things did definitely made me happier. Yeah. And, and I thought, well, that's kind of the purpose of life. I, I came to believe to be happy. The purpose was not Wimbledon? The purpose no longer was Wimbledon. And uh, they, I, I, they were at odds a little bit, I guess, that training, yeah. Ah, that, that, that. so there's a decision there that you made growing up with this boyhood dream of a, a Wimbledon and Australian Open. I, you know, I, yeah, I wanted yeah. to play All of that. Sheffield Shield cricket for Queensland yeah. growing up. Practice my signature that I do oh, after I won Wimbledon. <laughs> Everyone was doing right, that. You have right. to be able to do a good signature. Run, running up to thank your mum and dad. At yeah, the, at had the speech <laughs> ready. <laughs> it was the dream, wasn't yeah, it, when you were a kid? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But then, of course, in the pursuit of that, you start to recognise that that dream has its limitations is not the right word, but there's a bit of a folly to that dream that chasing greater inner happiness in your life, took on a higher purpose than the dream of playing at Wimbledon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And sport was always a love for me. Yeah. I, I played sport because I loved it. I love I grew up with cricket and soccer and yeah. tennis and played it all when I was a kid from a young age. And yeah. I love being athletic and rolling around and playing. Yeah. So it was always a love for me. But when, when you get to become or try to become a professional athlete, <laughs> the, the love of the, the sport can fade away a little Absolutely, bit too because you've yeah. got to train. And you recognise that? Well, yeah, it was tough work getting yeah. up every morning and, 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 and training every day for hours and doing yeah. cross training and your diet and your sleep and your life, everything is single-pointedly focused towards winning tennis matches. And that's not necessarily healthy. Yeah. <laughs> or it doesn't necessarily make you uh, happy. Yeah. Um, yeah. You must have been a robust individual, but allow me to elaborate on that. I, I'm using the word robust here because you're prepared to let go of all that, that childhood dream, that pursuit to become a world-class tennis player. You're prepared to let go of all that in order now to pursue inner happiness through your Buddhist practices, your meditative practices that you have become aware of. That's that. Uh, you've missed a step there. Bingo. Actually. I thought that's what that, I'm getting uh, at. Yeah. Missed, what's, missed the miss, step. what's the step? Well, I became a coach. Okay. After I ah. and it wasn't necessarily a choice that I want to become spiritually enlightened, so I'm going to give up tennis. Yeah. I, I wasn't really making it. <laughs> I yeah. wasn't, you know, shooting up the rankings or anything. Yeah. Um, and and I got offered a coaching job. I love coaching. Yeah. Um, at at a very young age, like 21, up in yeah. Rockhampton, and I and I started tennis coaching. 
and I enjoyed the mental aspect of it, teaching people how to be patient and to yeah. learn and to develop skills. There's a spiritual aspect to that, as yeah. we discussed before. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't as cut and dry as I'm giving up yeah, tennis to, to become yeah, a Buddhist monk. There was yeah. that coaching uh, middle ground. So from 21 to 28, yeah. um, I, was, the coach. I was coaching tennis. Uh, I was also a lot of other things back then too. I, I so want to get into the Buddhist monk and and your your experiences since then at 28 onwards, but I can't leave the coaching without asking this question. Let's just say there's a thousand sports coaches listening to this podcast, right? And in hindsight, you're now a 50-year-old practitioner of meditation and you're looking back upon coaching that you received and the coaching that you delivered and if you had some advising some 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 thought-provoking guidance for every coach of young people to consider <laughs> when you're coaching please do it this way maybe not that's the right question please consider this maybe that's the offering what have you got to say to coaches of our young people no pressure <laughs> the one big thing look honestly i was trying to think of something to say and anything i'd have to offer that would be worthwhile i think would be um and, and coaches will already know this that patience is a supreme aspect uh, to coaching and, and I would say um, your state of mind when you're coaching is just as important as what you're teaching um, when it comes to that person yeah. learning. Yeah. And at the forefront of that is this patience, this gentleness, yeah. uh, this softness, you know, the opposite of <laughs> Laurie Lawrence, I guess you would say, or the, or the screaming coach, <laughs> you know, I, I'd advocate for a, a very patient and receptive coach. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and, and I think that makes a lot of you. It's nearly becoming an advocate for the person. You yeah, know, you, you, you're going into it together with them. Yeah, uh, it's, it's that's like interesting. A, the relationship, the relationship, part of it. and, and I, yeah. I think you could even say trust. Yeah, um, patience and trust. Yeah, and, and just work on those aspects of being there for the person. Yeah, uh, and, and then the, your skills will be yeah. conveyed. You'll be able to teach. Things will flow from that. Yeah, uh, in, in other ways, like coaching is not my expertise. I, I found it. Because because coaching is quite a skill in every endeavour, yeah. uh, and it's quite a science to it. But yeah, I, I'd always emphasise that be that calm, wise person that you're trying to convey. That's interesting because you now threw in the word wise. Yeah, there. Yeah, I, I'm I'm reminded that right at this moment, after three rounds of the NRL. <laughs> The Redcliffe Dolphins, uh, they're probably not called the Redcliffe Dolphins, apologies, I think they're called the Dolphins, are now heading the NRL ladder. They've won three out of three. This is the new team on the block, coached by Wayne Bennett. And wow. every time I've heard of players talk about being coached by Wayne Bennett, they say this, and I want your reaction to this. They say he was far more than a football coach. In fact... He's more like a father figure. <laughs> he's almost—he's like a, um, a a wisdom provider. He's more like a relationship coach than he is a football coach. Can you relate to those players' comments? Oh, for sure. And the importance of that coach being that figure. Absolutely, it's yeah. it's the primary importance wow. is that relationship. Yeah. Um, and and so you're not just dealing with a skill. 
Yeah. You know, the, the, the person's ability to perform a skill. You, yeah. You're dealing with the person's emotions, yeah. the person's mind, yeah. which extends to that person's relationships at yeah. the time and, and the way they're behaving in their life and their lifestyle. So yeah. it, it extends and it's not just isolating it to a skill. It's yeah. Coaching is really coaching the whole person. Wow. And what's stopping that person from performing at their best. Yeah. And often what's stopping them performing at their best is uh, yeah, relationship issues, mental issues, yeah. struggles with their own mind and emotions and... Self-image yeah. and whatnot. Confidence. Not just the technique of their forehand or their backhand. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tell us about the decision that you made at 28 and where did it take you and what was uh, the immediate value of your decision? Uh, it came from, I, I guess, a relationship breakup. Wow. Um, and it was sort of like a bit of a, I've had enough of this. Yeah. I'm, I'm going off to become a monk. <laughs> Yeah. It really was that. I had been with a girl for like four years yeah. uh, or something like that. It was pretty serious. She was the dream uh, at the time? I, I, I never – yeah, no, no. <laughs> she wasn't the dream. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I mean we had a wonderful relationship. She was a wonderful woman. I appreciated her very much. Yeah. Um, and it, but we did have a relationship breakup. It was just me changing though. It was both of us changing. Yeah. And it was uh, – battling with life a little bit and money and bills and and after you sort of give up tennis you're like I don't want to just go get a job <laughs> you yeah. know like so I coached which sort of brought in a little money but yeah that became boring to me as well so yeah. I mean I was before my time with uh, entitlement issues <laughs> yeah. I guess I, I felt entitled to an easy easy life where I did what I loved yeah um but most of all I wanted to be happy yeah. I, like that's what life's about and I love playing tennis I love doing these things and then I learned the Buddhism well actually happiness isn't about acquiring all those things yeah. it's about having a, a certain mindset a certain understanding of the world a certain way but you learned this at 28 or you already mm. had learned it at 28 yeah it was after I, I got into tennis which introduced me to these concepts but it took eight years for them to percolate and to sink in and for me to get serious about it, and yeah. then that breakup was the final straw, and I'm like, fine. If I really want to be happy, I need to train in these things, become a monk full-time, and devote my life to Amazing. spiritual enlightenment. Now, that's a huge decision at a 20. Imagine all the 28-year-olds listening to this saying, um, if I actually want to you know, find some inner peace, some happiness in my life to become a more loving human being, yes, I rate that as important, I, at 28, am going to become a monk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to be fair, Bernie, uh, I was also taking uh, a lot of recreational drugs. Right, okay, okay. Not a lot. I wasn't addicted to anything. I was taking uh, LSD and ecstasy and partying a yeah. lot. Mind-altering substances. Yeah. And it was these psychedelics and mind-altering substances which also played a part in, in sort of me suspecting that reality wasn't as it appeared to me. Yeah. Both culturally, like what I was meant to do. Yeah. You know, get married, get a job, yeah. get, a, get a mortgage, pay your bills, or yeah. all of that. Um, I must admit that it was in, in experimenting with those psychedelics that did also open up a new avenue of way of perceiving. Amazing. Way of seeing the world and saying, yeah. look, it's not as mundane as I thought it was. It's quite special. Yeah. Uh, interconnected and amazing. Yeah. But following the suburban sort of life wasn't fulfilling uh, my deep wish to understand that yeah and to yeah. explore that so it was all those things combined i didn't want to just get a job and i wanted to be happy and i learned all these things through tennis and experimenting with psychedelics all all came together and i thought i'm going to the monastery 
Yeah, and I'm studying this full time. Making that decision to become a monk, how long did that last? How long were you a monk? And what was that experience like? What did it really teach you? Uh, I spent six years at the monastery. Um, Where was the monastery? Give us some context. It's up on the Sunshine Coast in, wow. in Queensland, a uh, town called Udalo, yeah. which has got like 50 people in it and a post office. <laughs> it's, not a yeah. big, it's not a big town. It's in the hinterland of the Sunshine Coast. It's a place called Chen Rezig Institute. Yeah. Uh, it's a Tibetan Buddhist centre started uh, back in the 70s by uh, two Tibetan Buddhist lamas, yeah. Lama Yeshi and uh, Lama Zopa Rinpoche. And their goal was simply to teach traditional and authentic Tibetan Buddhism yeah. to, to Westerners. Yeah. And it became one of the biggest monasteries uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, wow. actually. And it predominantly became a nunnery, uh, where the women were more attracted to Buddhism and that way of life. But there was, when I was up there, there was always about 20 nuns living up there, yeah. and maybe a handful of monks and the... Uh, main teacher yeah so yeah it's a beautiful place they have volunteers that live up there and they have a cafe and grounds and um garden of enlightenment where like a i guess you call a uh, cemetery a buddhist cemetery there um and they have lay people who aren't monks and nuns live there so it's quite a community courses Um, and programs courses and programs yeah yeah. Yeah, look them up uh very traditional types of tibetan buddhism taught up there beautiful practices so i studied with a, a a I was a guru at a time, at the time, which is a different relationship when you talk about a guru. It's sort of like your mentor, father figure, saviour, yeah. <laughs> you know, all balled into one. Yeah. But he was a uh, teacher from Tibetan Buddhism who'd spent 40 years training in like university standard uh, philosophy, uh, logic and, and methodology of Tibetan Buddhism. And I studied all the tantras and sutras and got the initiations. Uh, sutra is just the teachings of Buddha. Okay. So uh, the Buddha's teachings are called sutras. Okay. Uh, tantras came after Buddha. They were founded on Indian practices, okay. Shaivism and, and energy practices. Yeah. And they were collectively called the tantras. Yeah. They had their sort of roots in, in India. Yeah. Tibetan Buddhism is a mixture of like traditional Buddhism mm. and more of an esoteric energy-based uh, Buddhism with the chakras and things like that involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also incorporates Zen-like practices as well. So it incorporated the Zen of J- Japan and China and incorporated the energy traditions and the traditional Buddhism. So Tibetan Buddhism is really full. It's the best of all worlds. It is the best of all worlds. <laughs> My teacher said, when you study this, you'll understand everything. Wow. Okay. And you can put everything into perspective. And yeah. I thought, wow, that's a bit arrogant. Mm. <laughs> but since I've left there and, and, and studying psychology at university since and other uh, practices, uh, I can see how everything can really fit into this curriculum that the Tibetan Buddhists have laid out. It's like this mental curriculum to enlightenment. And if we want to go back before university, we've actually got a question what's actually happening at primary and secondary school level. How are we preparing our, our young people for life? Yeah, I don't think we are. We're preparing them for an economy. And, and I'm a bit cynical in the sense I don't think we have a society. I think we live in an economy. And everyone and money is the most important uh, lifeblood of our lives. Every day we have to make money. If you don't make money and you haven't got it, 
you're stuffed, you know. Yeah. You're, you're homeless and, and your health is going downhill. Yeah. You, you know what I'm enjoying right at the moment? What's that? I can actually hear a few listeners wanting to debate. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really, really enjoying that. Good on you, Chad. Good on you, mate. Yeah, I've always been a little bit anti-establishment. Yeah. I've, I've softened my views as I've gotten older. Um, yeah. the, the necessity of business and, and capitalism and so forth. But yeah. uh, it's, it still doesn't take away that we need to have a goal for the most supportive environment and culture as possible. I don't think if the aim is simply just to make more money yeah. that you're really grabbing the hearts and minds of people and putting them in a direction that supports and nourishes their life. Yeah. So I think individual pursuit is important, but you know, cultural changes and systemic changes are also necessary. You actually said to me in, in, the, in the prelude to this when we were having a cup of tea, coffee and a drink of water, um, you said, for example, Google uh, mm. have done things that, that are, are more on the surface looking after their customers, but you made a fascinating comment to me. Come on, let's go controversial here, mate. You made a comment. <laughs> yeah, what is their the motivation? Mic- the mindfulness movement. Tell me more. Tell, That's tell not my more. term, but yeah, it's the commodification of mindfulness and meditation practices yeah. where corporations just use those things to calm their employees down so they don't complain and they get on with, you know, being ground to the ground yeah. uh, with productivity. Yeah. So it's sort of like, you know, you can have your mindfulness, but you're still within a culture of competitiveness and, and money-driven pursuits. Yeah. And they call that mindfulness because it's just void of any depth of Buddhist context for, for, yeah. for, to begin with. Um, yeah. And they've just boiled it down to basically calming down yeah. and getting on with your job. So you can be more productive <laughs> for us. So you can be more productive for the man at the top yeah. r- rather than creating a nurturing uh, environment for yeah. people to work in, which must include spiritual dimensions. Wow. But they have started. There's meditation pods, yeah, uh, whatever. And yeah. but if it's not uh, cohesive, if the company has no integrity, like if they don't really care about the person, what yeah. they really care about is the bottom line. That always comes into conflict somewhere. I suppose one possible good thing is, as as someone becomes aware of mindfulness or the meditative practices, even within a business context, they go into their pod, right? There is the possibility that their actual experience of that on a personal level could be such that they too bring up the very question that you're you're giving our listeners right now. Mm. And therefore they can make the decision as to whether staying on at that company, yeah. <laughs> given that their mindfulness is their purpose. Yeah that they may make personal decisions, just as you made at 28 oh, years absolutely. of age. Oh, absolutely. Don't so get that, me wrong. That's a good thing. I, I think yeah. it's wonderful. And people will often uh, criticise yoga that it's lost its spiritual context because it's just about stretching and looking good yeah. th- these days. Uh, it's more of a fitness or a sport. But people get into yoga and then they learn the deeper aspects of the spiritual yeah. um, wisdom to it. So it's like an entry point. Yeah. And I think we all have a divine nature, a consciousness that speaks to us. And if we do any sort of technique that quietens our mind, no matter what the intention of the person who sent you into that pod was, like you say, you do experience a level of clarity and stillness that yeah. changes your perception and might even say, screw this, I'm not working for this guy. Absolutely. There's, there's yeah. no integrity at this yeah. corporation. I'm going to somewhere where they do have integrity. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. I don't have the answers, uh, but obviously there's things wrong with our society and uh, I have, yeah. That's I'll see you in six months. (laughs) (laughs) We can talk more about that, but I love the idea of bringing spirituality into business and just to say that spirituality isn't something woo-woo, it's the same as psychology. Yeah. The word psyche 
used to mean soul. Yeah. And it was like the science of the soul, but they became more sort of objectified as a science. They tried to grasp objective reality through mm. psychology, through numbers and stats and without looking at the subjective experience of it, mm. which is the more the soul, the spirit. Mm. So psychology, I think, has lost its way because it's lost its spirit. Mm. But spirituality is just our humanity, what connects us, yeah. what makes us enjoy a day of work. Yeah. Well, spirituality is laughter. You know, when you can bust through all sort of preconceived ideas and have a laugh with someone, yeah. that's universal. So yeah. if you can have a culture that supports like love, laughter, joy in the workplace, not only would we love going there, but I, I dare say it would be a productive corporation as well. well I would have thought that in that culture um, that you're, you're, you're more inclined to want to interact with the customer as a person yeah, authentic, yeah, authenticity not, is huge yeah, too. That's not, a spiritual idea, isn't it? To, yeah. be, to be authentic. Yeah. And so often we have to be inauthentic yeah. at work. And that is mind-numbing. It's bad for our health. And yeah. we just spiritually shrivel up and die yeah. in those situations. Yeah. I'm going to give a little plug here if you don't mind. This, Go this, for this it. Is, this is actually where in, in recent weeks I, I've actually spent some time with Domino's Pizza. Um the, the Australian company and, uh, and dare I say it, I've been working with their staff in Malaysia and I can, I can honestly hand on heart say that they've given me the freedom to actually pursue many of the concepts that you and I are talking about um, and to open up their staff's minds to the possibilities of connection with other staff through a far more loving existence. Um, and to understanding how that actually translates into wanting to connect with the heart of a customer. Uh, it's pretty hard to give heart to a customer if you're actually leaving the store and there's no heart in the store. Um, you, you're sort of like taking the spirit of the place that you've just left to deliver the product, in this case the pizza. Um, it's pretty hard just to turn it on at the door. It's much easier when the whole environment around you is fostering that loving, nurturing, caring, respectful um, uh, spirit in the way that we treat each other. And of course, my message to all the staff is, what a heck of a beautiful way to live. Mm. It's not just something that belongs to your Domino's workplace. Mm. It, it belongs to life. Mm. So now you can actually live life through your work. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately. And people who, Ultimately. people who do that are the happiest, aren't they? You, you, you got it, Chad. Mm. I call it, they're the people that can actually, through their work, their work actually becomes an extension of themselves. Mm. The work is not separate to yeah. self. There's it's a quote by, uh, yeah. quote by Alan Watts. He says, the secret of happiness is easy. It's just realised that um, everything is play, that even your work is play. Yeah. Yeah. Everything, you know, stop thinking of it as work. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's it's yeah. actually play. Yeah. Now, buddy, guess what? I haven't forgotten that at 28 years of age, you entered this monastery. Yeah. Right? And I honestly believe, dear listeners, <laughs> here comes the substance. <laughs> We've been talking about some great stuff yep. even until now. Yeah. But just you, you're 28 years of age, you gave us a bit of a glimpse as to what a day looks like. But over the next six years... What did you, oh, what a terrible question, it's too broad. What did you learn about 
life? What did you learn about happiness or the pursuit of happiness? What conclusions were you starting to reach given this incredible experience uh, in the well, Tibetan monastery? The surprising thing that happened was I, I, I did the Henry Thoreau. I actually lived in a hut about a kilometre away from the main temple in the bush. It was still part of their land, but it was the, the furthest uh, extremity of the land. And there was no one else around for hundreds of metres. There was just this hut in the bush. It had no running water, no electricity. I lived with candlelight. I had to carry my water out there on my shoulders, my drinking water. Um, it, it did have rainwater from the dam, but you couldn't drink it. So I showered in rainwater. Um, and I lived that life... It was why I was, I was a city boy, or at least a suburban boy. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I'm in the middle of the bush. You were city Sydney. You grew I was up city Sydney. Sydney. Yeah, in Sydney. Yeah, yeah in yeah, Maroubra, yeah. in Sydney, on the come, beach. Come back to the hut. Yeah. And then I'm in the hut, uh, chasing away snakes and rodents. And the first night I was there, it, it's the stillness of the nighttime in the bush. It's just amazing. It's so quiet when there's. I didn't have any radio, any TV. I didn't have any internet. I didn't have any devices. And I became the animal in the cage. All the animals came to look at me. That's how I felt. Like all the animals, the, the, the goannas, the koalas, um, the wombats, the echidnas, there's all the Australian animals that all, all would make this noise, would come and check me out. And I was like the foreign creature. So I went into this environment where I sort of, I was foreign, but it was, it was a wild I learnt a lot from living in nature, living that closely to nature. Tell us, what did you learn? Man? I learnt moon cycles. When I had to walk to my hut and I had dinner, as I did every night up at the um, cafe uh, with all the other monks and nuns, um, if I didn't have a torch, I couldn't get home because if the moon was out, I could see my way home if there was no... So I got in touch with moon cycles and that might sound silly, but it became part of my life that I knew that 28-day cycle and I would... We would have a ritual at Chen Rezik at every full moon. There'd be a, a big ceremony in the Gompa. And Tibetan Buddhism was closely related to astrology and moon cycles and phases and whatnot. So this is all part of getting out of our culture. Like part of the Western culture is the clock. Yeah. It, it, it's the thing that binds us all together is this clock and our calendar. Right, and and these are sort of constructed ideas. Our twelve-month calendar, yeah. The the more natural calendars, the thirteen-moon calendars, because that's the it, that's how long it takes for the Earth to to go around the sun is thirteen full moons. Yeah. So, when you're living in in moon cycle instead of clock and month cycle sort of thing, when's my next full moon? The months don't matter as much, yeah. and even that snaps you out of a certain way of thinking. Yeah. Or we would come to the gompa, come to lunch, and come to the pujas the ceremonies from the gong yeah. so instead of having a clock i would just listen out for the gong and when the gong would go I'd like, oh, it's lunch time i'll go out for lunch oh, it's study time go out for study oh, it's prayer time go yeah. out for prayers it's a different way of living yeah instead of living by the clock and by calendars you're living by the moon and by yeah. gongs <laughs> yeah. so when i when i lived there for six years the buddhism and the monk thing was in, was interesting and it changed me a lot but what i realized did change me even more was living that closely to nature yeah in 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 harmony with the natural cycles with the moon cycles uh, just being closer to when the sun went down when it went up because i had no electricity i couldn't just turn my devices and lights on and stay up till midnight or two yeah. o'clock in the morning i would go to sleep a lot earlier did you become one with nature this is what we're getting to, isn't it? This is what I said I did to Henry Thoreau. Because these people who are often mainstream, they go out and live in nature and all of a sudden they sound like the mystics. 
And the mystics of Tibet would also say, go to the hills. Go away from the marketplace. Go away from society and meditate in the hills. Mm. So this is an ancient old practice to head to the hills, to separate yourself from the culture uh, and to meditate deeply on your meaning of life. What's this all about? What's my mind and soul about? What did you discover about Chad Foreman as he feels this oneness with nature? What did you discover about you? Um, what did I discover about me? It's it's just being. See, with with Buddhism, you become you're not you're not discovering who you really are. You know, like the search for self, because Buddhism is about losing the self, no self. Yeah. That this idea of who you thought you were. Yeah. Was actually just a, a narrative. Something. Well, there's that, the discovery. Isn't that's it? the there's di- the first discovery. Yeah, like you mentioned, everything that's been given to you about what you have to do is not true. But even everything given to you about who you think you are is also not true. So if you go to this deeper level of identity, I took on a new identity. I took on a Buddhist identity. Describe that for us, mate. Look at my face, mate. I'm I'm enlightened. (laughs) I'm I'm fascinated. Well, I I got brainwashed in a way, Bernie, to be honest. I got brainwashed into Buddhism. I would bow to all the... All the statues, I would do the puja, I would say my prayers, but I would be, it would be positive brainwashing. For me, I was brainwashing myself to be more compassionate because that's yeah. what all the prayers and meditating was about, right? To be more loving, more compassionate. I'd be brainwashing myself to be more wise, yeah. which was simply being more open-minded, you know, not, not being so opinionated. So I wasn't discovering, I was discovering stuff about myself that's not even really me. You know, that competitive stuff. That's just not me. That was just driven into me by my parents, you know, competing. And society around and society. The school systems. Yeah, yeah, getting rewards when you do things. You know, back in my yeah. day in the 80s, you, you get rewards for winning yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. And being rewarded and loved when you when you won or getting attention, all that just screwed me up and yeah. I, I had a big ego. So a lot of it was discovering that about myself, I guess. Yeah. It wasn't discovering the good things. <laughs> it was discovering the, the bad things and then going into that therapeutic work of having to let that stuff go, having to forgive my parents for not being perfect, um, having to overcome my competitiveness and uh, my, my fixed ideas and things like that. So, dare, dare I throw in here the unlearning? <laughs> it's exactly what it is. That's yeah. why I giggled before when you said it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's abs- in fact, Krishnamurti, one of the most famous spiritual adepts of India, last century said it's, that's what spirituality is. It's not about learning anything. It's about unlearning all, yeah. of, all of your knowledge. Uh, yeah, and when you get down to that pure sort of naked, raw awareness, uh, that's enlightenment. Yeah. When, when there's no preconceived judgments of this present moment, which is a fairly difficult thing to even conceive of. But that was the process at, at Chen Rezig that I went through, was this sort of deconstruction, but also reconstructing me to be a good Buddhist, yeah. which is part of my story. But, but okay, you're, 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 you're unlearning and you're yep. letting go of the self. These are Buddhist concepts. Yeah. Whether they're Buddhist concepts or not, you're, you're buying into that there is a reality for you that there is really worth your while to let go of this concept of self. Um, let's get rid of these distractions of the mind. Um, and this leaves you concluding what about who you are? Where do you, who, who, if you get rid of all that, hmm. let's focus on the other side for a moment. Therefore. 
Well, back who at, are you, Chad? Who did you those, learn to be? Who, who did you learn that you are? Should I answer that question from what I know now, or yeah, from what no, I now. thought? What I, I thought now. at the time. No, I want to go now because <laughs> you used the, the word brainwashed before. Yeah, and I had this little thing going in my mind. I'm not quite. You, you, you've got every right to use the word brainwashed. It's your description, right? Yeah. But you're not brainwashed now. No. And I would have thought if you were brainwashed, it, it might have had some sustainability. But you're not. You're not bowing to you know every icon that's around you anymore. You've 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 actually been through that journey and yeah. you've reached some conclusion. Yeah. Answer it from the now. Who are you now? Who are Who are you now? Is the deepest question you can ask. That's the why. It's the, the core of all spiritual and religious traditions is who you really are. If you're just your body, if you have a soul that goes on after life, you know, what is it that it means to be you? What is that essence? Uh, who art thou? Uh, in, in Indian philosophy as well, this question is, is the most deepest. And this has been my pursuit. And different Buddhist traditions say different things. And I wasn't just sitting on a hill meditating and coming up with all the answers. Like some people do get that. They go off and have an epiphany. I went off and studied. I studied a system and I believe certain things. Um, but what I've come to is I've found in Tibetan Buddhism views and philosophies that are similar to other mystic traditions. And it's what's known as the perennial philosophy that at our core we are consciousness. And that consciousness is not local or an individuated thing it's a universal field of intelligence wow man so i have to answer like that i know it's a bit yeah I mean, full on but after if you're gonna can ask me well, who i am it, that's that's where i'm going and that's that's what i've come to realize now yeah back then i thought i was a uh like a soul who was training to be enlightened in the future <laughs> That I, if I did all these things, I would get enlightened. Probably not even in this life, in the next life. Okay. Or probably in my next 10, 20, 100 lives, eventually I'd get enlightened. So I was a trainee back in those days of Buddhist enlightenment. But see, even there, there's, there's, a, there's a message to our listeners that in your belief, we are a spiritual being. And that even though at 80, 90, 100 years of age, whenever, our body passes... Our spirit lives on. There is, I think it's Catholic and Christian terms. They talk about eternal life. Is it? I'm sure that's part of. Is that part of Buddhism as well? Well, Buddhism has a similar thing with the soul, like yeah, their, reinc soul, yeah, their yeah. reincarnation. Like they don't call Re it. A, that's right. Yeah. They don't call it a soul. They call yeah. it a subtle mind. Yeah. But it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. It goes on after a physical death. Yeah. Travels on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I believed all that hook, line, and sinker when I was training as a. So as respond a to this statement here. Yep. Down here on planet Earth. Yep. We are spiritual beings. Primarily, uh, in essence. In essence. No, this is where it can get a bit tricky because there's a unified field of consciousness, uh, the, the great void, uh, Brahman, um, God. Yeah. Okay. What was there before the Big Allah. Bang? Allah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The perennial philosophy. It's found in all the great religious traditions. Yeah. And now physics is saying, or quantum physics, that things that are trying to get at that unified field, something that connects us all. Yeah. I really believe, and I think I've touched on this experience of this experience of oneness, of openness, non-locality, non-ego, yeah. what people might call an awakening yeah. or an epiphany. So that's who I think we are. And that is in, that's intelligence. 
it's uh, and, it, and it's pure potential for all the form in the universe. Yeah. So that is what we are at our deepest level. The soul that goes on is something that is like a wave. Yeah. For me, that's not some individual thing that carries on. Yeah. We're more like this ocean of consciousness that waves. Yeah. So right now you're a Bernie wave. I'm a Chad wave. At our core, we have the same ocean yeah. of universal wisdom and consciousness, intelligent consciousness. Yeah. So, so these are my beliefs. And the further up you go to the surface, the more superficial and fleeting it is. Mm. Like for our skin, yeah. for instance, it changes by the year. Yeah. You know, as we grow old, our physicality, that, that's just surface level stuff, impermanent stuff that's constantly yeah. changing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in fact, the laws of Buddhism says that anything that's manifest it's constantly changing. Yeah. But there's something that's unmanifest, yeah. the pure potential, this heart of the matter, yeah. uh, and that's what I'm, I'm calling your essential nature. Yeah. And that's why I think we are. Our fundamental identity is that. Wow. And I think you used the, the term before that you would regard that as our divine pathway. <laughs> well, I think there's, as we become individuals like we are, this wave, yeah. this wave has, an, uh, has a inclination and desire to know where it comes from yeah so we all have this spiritual uh, intuition within us to want to know who we are yeah. what, what is our deepest identity uh so everyone has that it's jung it's like the existential angst as well uh, that jung talked about wanting to know our deepest humanity what we are at our core level what is the relationship between this this core level this essence this unified field this force and the concept that most people know as love. What's the relationship between the two? Well, love is the coherence. When, when I'm in touch with that field and you're in touch with that field, yeah. when we meet, there's love. Yeah. We recognise each other as the one thing. Yeah. Uh, that's the deepest level of love. Every other level is a little bit more superficial. And, yeah. But the deepest level is recognising that at our core, uh, we are the same thing kind of thing. So therefore, you're saying the more one moves in the direction of, um, I'm going to say discovering the essence, and, and yeah. I know that. Well, that's okay. Discovering the essence, but I think you've alluded to before. You actually discover the essence by learning to 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 manage the distractions, um, not fall unlearning, so mm. to speak. There's a there's a there's a lot of process. In, in, in keeping that interruption yep. out there so that we can actually discover more of our essence. The yeah. more and more we discover that essence, you're saying innately we therefore become a more loving human being. Yes, more innately a more loving human being. It's, it's the, the love is the fragrance of this universal field. It's its presence. Any spiritual being that is in contact with it has this loving presence. Mate, there it is, mate. Every guest I have, there's always a sentence that I hear and I go, that's a wow. You've got to repeat that one for me. <laughs> love is the well, any fragrance. Be, any, yeah, love is the fragrance of emptiness, of, of our core void, this universal field that's like yeah. space. Love is its fragrance, and any individual being who's connected to this essence it is also connected with that loving presence. Wow. And you feel it when you're in the presence of any master or anyone who's truly, and this is anyone who's truly humble, 
This is anyone, any everyday person can be in touch with this. This is our true nature. And this is the difference between I'm going to be enlightened in a hundred lifetimes compared to what I discovered at at my Buddhist monastery was these radical teachings, which were a little bit against the traditional religious sense, is that you're already enlightened. That this intelligence is at the core of your being right now. And there's ways of accessing it and being in alignment with it. Do you believe that? I totally believed it. Yeah. It's, and I found it in every other tradition. It's called the perennial philosophy. But you're saying right now, <laughs> you're saying, hey, listeners, come to grips. You're already God. Yeah. God, you said, yeah, quickly then. <laughs> you're already it. Yeah. And the only reason why we don't recognise that is because? Uh, well, because of our individuation, we have, we have got survival things like our body, our biology. You know, yeah. it, it has certain survival mechanisms, a certain brain, a certain way of perceiving that, that actually obscures its universal nature. Yeah. And just for the, the biology and the way that life flourishes, where there's so much intelligence just in that. Like it's not like the biology gets in the way because the biology is an expression of this intelligent divine nature. You know, if you study biology, you're studying God. Yeah. That's what science, science started out as, you know, yeah. the study of the laws of God. Yeah. Um, but as an individual person, your biology and your monkey mind, your lizard brain will, will sort of block just, just for necessity of survival. Yeah. You can't be contemplating oneness or in a state of pure equality when you need to get some food and you need to get (laughs) some shelter and you need to get away from enemies and so forth. So there's biological conditioning. On top of that, there's cultural conditioning. So the things even down to time and space and what our modern science might tell us is reality of our time, um, the culture of our time, what they give us what's important, what we think should be important. And that all these cultural ideas of who we think we are, Mm. you know, these constructs of gender, for yeah. instance, you know, being a yeah. man or a woman, that's on yeah. the forefront of people's minds today. What is yeah. it to be a man or a woman? These are culturally constructed. Yeah. So these block your true identity. Even the idea that you're a personality, that when I talk about Bernie, what yeah. I, you know, who's Bernie? Yeah. You might w- want to say, I'm this, I'm that, I've got a good sense of humour, I'm down to earth, I love my sport. Yeah. You know, I've only known you for a short amount of time. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. You know, you've got a personality, yeah, right? Yeah. But that's not you. Yeah. That's just the conditions of this human life that you've had. Yeah. You know, your parents, your upbringing, everything before now, and it's going to go away. Yeah. So it's not going to be around for that long. Yeah. But what doesn't go away is that eternal field of energy underneath. Yeah, yeah. How do you get rid of those blocks? Not rid of. How do you dilute those? Some those of them blocking. But what's the processes? Well, now we're getting down to action and strategy that can yeah. help us discover the essence yeah. of who we are. Yeah. What What are your tips for diluting that that those interruptions, those interventions? Well, to, to mature, I think Einstein actually put it well. It's like to widen your circles of love. That when we're children, we love just the people next to us, our family, our mum, our, our dad, you know, and then we extend it to our family when we get a bit older, our, our grandparents, our aunties, we have this circle of love. Um, and then it can grow to your community, your, your sports team or, or whatever. But just to continue to grow that circles of, of love, which is that natural inclination to be in touch with this unified field. Is everyone your so, brother and sister? Yeah, that's that's the that's the view, isn't it? That's what. No, is that your view? Yeah. How do you how do you enact that view? 
What is that? What does that look like on a on a day to day basis? You pass a stranger, you walk outside the house here, and a stranger walking down the road. Are you viewing them as lovingly, and how does that play out? Yeah, I guess it's through spiritual practice you make your default mode calm and loving. So you say hello. Oh no! Oh, yeah, sure. I, I do tend to say hello to people yeah. more than others, and often surprise them. Yeah, that that's I, I, I'd walk past someone and people, I say hello to them all the time. Yeah. I'm like the country bumpkin, like yeah. uh, Paul Hogan when he gets to New York, you know, saying yeah. saying g'day to everyone. Yeah. But no, it's it's. I think loving others, it's, the things you can do. I always start with love before even meditation. Um, you can practice that, and it can, you can get better at it. Um, yeah. um, and seeing everyone as your brother and sister is a great way to train your mind. Yeah. It's it's not the ultimate truth, but it's a way to train your mind out of thinking competitively yeah. about others and then thinking of them as your brother and sister and treating them with patience. Mm. But it always starts with loving yourself. And to love yourself fully, you have to accept yourself and, and your shadows. Elaborate. Well, when no one's perfect. Yeah. And you have to love yourself right now yeah. as an imperfect being. Yeah. Because as a personality, as a, as a monkey, as a biology, as a person in this culture, we're imperfect. Even though our essence is perfect. Is perfect. Yes. But these, in, I've called them the, I, I will, I, I've put that category of interventions, I've called them the blocks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's those blocks and us buying into those blocks, living those blocks, the monkey mind, this, the, the cultural uh, messages that we bought into, the societal messages from education, yeah, parents, etc., etc. The buying into all that um, has created this, this, these imperfections. So I think uh, an essential part of a spiritual journey is a sense of humour. When you can laugh at yourself, you're never short of material. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and learning to laugh at yourself, be humorous, loving and kind and love yourself for who you are Yeah, with all your flaws. Don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah, yeah. meditation I think is not so much about perfecting yourself but befriending yourself. Wow, that's a beauty. Yeah, that's, that's a beauty. That's a beauty. That's a reorientation towards yeah. what you're trying to do. Because yeah. in our competitive society, we engage yeah. in these things, trying to perfect something or get better at it or yeah. you know improve something. Whereas when you look at just acceptance and love and surrender, they're all things you can do right now. You don't have to improve. You know, yeah. you don't have to remove anything. You don't have to add anything. Yeah. So once you learn that type of love for yourself, yeah, then you can love the person walking down the street. Yeah. Because yeah. usually we judge people. Just walking down the street, what yeah. they're wearing, how they're walking, how old they are, how sure. whatever, all the judgments we make. It's yeah. part of our biology. But when you can love them anyway, yeah. the same way as you love yourself anyway, um, that's when we can start to remove at least some tribalism and, and some more gross levels of uh, the things that block you. Love you. Love it. Because it, yeah. there, there's many layers. But yeah. that first layer is just learning love. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. kindergartenism. You know, love, love each other. Don't steal. Don't punch each other. Be nice to each other. Yeah, that, that's yeah. What, yeah, these but, are worthwhile. But but the, the, the handy little little suggestions that you've got because for our listeners, uh, they're probably saying, "Wow, I, I I get this. I can see this." But where do I start? Yeah, you know, yeah. So try this for a thought, right? And and forgive me, listeners. This is a, a Bernie view, so I've sabotaged the interview. But I want to hear Chad's thoughts to it. 
something that's really helped me is recognition that three years after I die, no one except my two kids will remember who I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and, and why is that an important recognition? Because I don't want to take myself so, too seriously. Mm-hmm. Okay, I make errors, I make mistakes, I, I've got faults, I've got imperfections. Well, guess what? Yeah, I'm a grain of sand upon the beach. Yeah, and, and no one's going to give a hoot. Yeah, <laughs> three years after the body's the the body's decayed. Yeah, can you is that a good suggestion? That type of paradigm and perception. Yeah, look, it's not the truth, but it's it's mind training. <laughs> no, it's it's. It, Who else is going to remember me, Jack? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I know. I mean, it's the truth. It's just not ultimately true. You're just training your mind in concepts to yeah. to counteract the concept of taking yourself too seriously. Yeah. And you think, hey, look, in two hundred years' time, no one's going to know, and it's not yeah. going to matter in the slightest. Yeah. These are brilliant mind trainings. Yeah. You don't have to create a religion out of that, no, or a, no. a Bible, or no. this is what everyone has to do. No. This is what I mean. Like they're not ultimately true. Yeah, but as a mind training in Tibetan Buddhism, it's called lojong. Yeah, and you create the environment where love flourishes, patience flourishes, wisdom flourishes, yeah. and, and an environment of loving and acceptance, and not taking yourself so seriously yeah. is absolutely important. So anything you can do, I encourage people to make up their own Bernieism. Yeah, you know, because you yeah. you're going to interject here, so this will probably be wrong, but yeah. it's right for you. It's, yeah, and if if you are right now, someone listening to this gets some benefit out of it. Yeah. try it. Yeah, yeah, try it. There's meditations where you um, go above yourself. You imagine streaming out. And then seeing the earth as a little grain of sand in the distance. Yeah. And just how tiny that earth is in relation to even just our solar system. Done that one before. Let alone the galaxy. Don't you find that powerful doing that? Oh, the Buddha talked like that all the time. It's yeah. so powerful. Yeah. So part of my, my nightly routine is taking my dog out at night and staring up into the stars every single night. Yeah. What you look at affects your mind. So you're just meditating on that vastness. That's a strategy, Chad. That's an action. Mm-hmm. Elaborate a little bit more for our, the benefit of our listeners the real value of you taking the dog out and looking up to the stars. What's its real value to you? Look, just on an everyday level, it stops rumination. Meaning, what's rumination, mate? Well, you can't, we keep thinking the same negative thought over and over again. Yeah, yeah. You just can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. You know, people can interrupt you, have a conversation with you and you're thinking about it then and you'll think about it afterwards. And then this is the negative part of thinking. I mean, the damaging part of thinking. So you need something to clear your mind. And for me, I mean, I've got experience in meditating and other techniques. So it's, you know, I'm bringing all that to when I look at the sky, I'm I'm also breathing and and just focusing my mind and snapping into that clarity. Um, but it's, it wipes the mind clean. It stops the rumination. It mm. brings you back to what I said, the default mode mm. is calm and loving. So it's just always returning to, to this base camp of, of being present, open and loving. Chad, I tell you how I'm feeling about this podcast. Right? I just feel as if there's so much that we should be exploring and yet I'm also aware that we, we perhaps need to head towards a, a, a close on it. Um, um, simply because uh, I, I do promise our listeners around about the hour mark, you know. So I'm moving towards closure, but with a, uh, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing all this again because I'm going to be able to identify all the things we didn't talk about. And I seriously, I could be knocking on your door again. <laughs> <laughs> in about six months. No worries. To do a part two. I'm up for round two. Um, in closure, I'm going to do something, and I don't know why I'm, I'm, I'm doing this, but I dreamt it last night. And it, 
and my instinct just says, do it with Chad. Good enough. Right? I'm just going to mention one word. Mm-hmm. And I want you to hear the word. And I just want you to give us your like one sentence short punchiest response to the, to the to the word or the phrase. All right, it's it's a, it's a bit, we're going to machine gun the listeners. Oh, so not just one word. We're going to do a few of them. Yeah, I'm going to. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm going to go bang, and you you also give a response. I'm going to go. Here's another word, and and you give a response, and let's yeah. just see where it, where it lands. Sure. Okay. Okay. And. Unified field is my first word. Mm-hmm. Sentence, go. Is the God of religions, is the underlying fabric of reality that connects all beings. Oh, God, now you've, asked, now you've stimulated me to want to ask more questions. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. I'll, I'll stick by the process. Um, happiness. Happiness is a big word that has levels of meaning from superficial happiness to the deep spiritual happiness of of enlightenment. Oneness. Oneness is our essential condition. It's who we truly are. Nature. Nature is the intelligent... Uh, expression of the divine essence. Love of humanity is the perfume of being connected to oneness, is the, the lifeblood of any healthy society. Vegetarianism is a healthy dietary choice. <laughs> Meaning Meaning. Meaning of life. <laughs> Is this the last question? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be a short, zippy uh, answer. Yeah. Uh, meaning of life is not fixed, is to play, to love, and to enjoy. Essence. Essence is within us at the same time as being everywhere. Love. Love is the most important spiritual practice. And the last is a question. Who are you? I'm just me in this moment. Who is me in this moment? Um, it's so hard to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm the flow of life expressing itself now. Wow. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Chad... I'd heard about your your work before I came to that one day retreat, and in hearing about your work, I was immediately um, connected to wanting to uh, uh, see and meet you and experience you. Oh, yeah. And I, I think 
my more wonderful surprise was the ease of connection that I could immediately uh, feel. Um, uh, you know, to me, I could take you to the footy tomorrow night, mate, and, uh, and I reckon I could catch you a couple of times having a little mumble under your breath at the abuse of the umpire. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to me, you, you, you could be the guy next door, the guy I could be having a barbecue with, and yet, on the other hand, mate, you're a, uh, you're a spiritual teacher, you know. And, you know, we talk about things that we bought into. Unfortunately, that phrase, spiritual teacher, has a paradigm in my mind and perhaps in, in the eyes of, of many of our listeners here. But, mate, it's just such a joy spending this time uh, with you. Listeners, I had the privilege of learning from Chad two hours beforehand as we just discussed life. And, uh, and I, I wish I'd podcasted half of that because there was such real, real value in that discussion. But, Chad, I've no doubt that many people listening to this podcast um, will also be taking away many thought-provoking concepts and ideas and some real practical actions and strategies, even down to the value of walking outside the house at nine o'clock and just having a look at the stars. <laughs> yeah, hey, could I ask one last question? Yep. How close did you get to those animals at the hut? Did you find the actual physical distance between you and them was decreasing over time? Um, I, I, I overcame my fear of snakes and removed, physically removed snakes from my heart and also caught mice um, who were running away from the snakes and removed them from my heart too so I, wouldn't be, I don't kill any animals. So handling a snake was getting pretty close to it and I became, because I overcame that fear, a few of the other huts would call me over to get rid of their snakes too. So I'd be, I'd, I became the go-to guy to uh, grab the snakes and to remove them from huts. And I came to find out that snakes are very uh, territorial and they will come back and they have their territory so you have to remove them a fair way away, like kilometres, otherwise they'll come back to the same places. So yeah, I've gone for a few drives with a few carpet snakes in my time to, to release them into the wild away from us. So you were picking up snakes that were in your hut. Yeah. <laughs> And I assume that when you entered the hut, you probably had as much fear of snakes as what most people. It, I is, it, it is there, yeah. No, knowing what what type they are, I wouldn't touch any like brown snakes or black snakes or anything. These are just tree snakes and pythons and whatnot. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't mess with uh, anything dangerous. Yeah. Whereas yeah. proper snake handlers would. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's that's how close I got to them. Yeah. But you just feel like you're you're with them when you're. We it's. I actually didn't have any windows on this hut either. It was just fly screens, <laughs> so it would get pretty. I'd have a fireplace. It'd get pretty cold at, yeah. at winter. Um, but it was felt really close to, yeah. to, to nature. Like you said, I felt one with nature. Yeah, I think, I think that's a beautiful ending because it actually tells us an outcome um, that you experienced as a result of the journey that we've been talking about over the last, uh, last unit of time. Hey, Chad Foreman. Thank you ever so much, mate, for your time. And, mate, I've got to come back. It's just too much to, to talk about. Anytime, Bernie. You're welcome anytime. Thanks for having me on your podcast. It's been a pleasure. Cheers, pal. Take Thank, care. Thanks, mate. See you, mate. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Hey, I do hope you enjoyed today's episode of A Journey with Bernie. Dear people, I loved it. I just love the continuous learning journey that our dear guests offer each and every one of us. Of course, you may be after contact and connection details or references to books or other podcasts or educational sources that we talked about. They're all in the podcast notes. Do go there, folks. Now, there are some of you that have rung me about joining our forthcoming trips to Nepal. We're leaving April the 6th and September the 22nd. Imagine you and I walking to Everest Base Camp, even discussing some of the content of these episodes. You do have another opportunity, and that's that beautiful, iconic pathway to Gokyo Lakes via Ronjo Pass or Sholar Pass. Imagine being in the presence of the mighty Himalayas. It'd be so great to have you on board. Just give us a call. Plus six one, that's the Australian code, followed by my mobile number, 412-982-444. Why? Because we've just got to embrace this journey called life. Enjoy it, dear people, and just remember...